continental philosophy, there's actually a very important concept. Basically, it's the idea that if you want to understand a text, a book, anything, you've got to, at the same time, you're building an idea of what the whole book or album or movie is about. You're doing that by referring to each part as you watch the movie, read the book, each new chapter, each paragraph. You're building an idea about what the overall message of the book is. But at the same time, as you interpret each new part of the book or movie, you're also bearing in mind your idea of what the whole is about. So you're using the whole to interpret parts, but you're using parts to interpret the whole. Now, I'm going to give you some explanations of this, because it's a little bit hard to grasp at first, unless you're given some um, examples. So when I first watched The Sopranos, uh, trying to work with stuff that people will be familiar with, the first episode, I, I turned on, I had no clue, I heard it was good, and there was, you know, Tony Soprano, played by James Gandolfini, picking up his newspaper while looking around, look as if he was expecting to get shot, and I thought, oh, okay, this is going to be an, a kind of updating of The Godfather. But then, shortly afterwards, there was a scene where uh, Tony Soprano was in therapy. This is no longer at all like The Godfather. <laughs> there, here's a guy sort of moaning in therapy about, you know, how he can't trust anybody, and and how difficult it is to be a mob boss, and I thought, oh, this is a parody uh, mafioso show. But then there was all these really deeply felt scenes between James Gandolfini and Edu Falco, the, the husband and wife, uh, and I thought, oh, so this is a godfather-like semi-parody comedy <laughs> with family drama, and so as each part unfolded, you see, I had to adapt the my idea of what the entire show was about so it could make sense of and could contain each new part. You following me? So I'll give you another example. When I first heard about David Foster Wallace's book, Infinite Jest, I looked at the cover and the title and I thought, oh, this is a satire of American life, a la John Dos Passos. But then as I read parts, more parts, my idea of the whole kept changing, like it became, there was a stuff about being in AA and addiction rehab, uh, so it was like a coming-of-age memoir, but then there was this stuff about Quebec separatist terrorists, I said, oh, fuck, this is a dystopian novel, and then, but then there was all this dysfunctional family drama with the incandenzas, and I thought, okay, so this is an end-of-the-world dystopian family drama <laughs> comedy about getting sober. And so what we do when we're in life, in encountering anything, is we're constantly, hopefully, updating sometimes our idea of what an experience means so that it can contain the parts. But at the same time we're doing that, we're using an, our, 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 our idea of what the whole is about to help us interpret the parts. So, for example, if I meet someone new 
And for the first time I'm meeting them, I'm getting a sense of who they are by their way they dress, the way they hold themselves, whether they interrupt or wait to speak, whether they make eye contact or not. I get a sense of who this person is. And then over time, though, if they say things that really don't fit, I'll use my sense of, oh, this is Mirza, he's probably joking. Or he's probably, in this case, being serious. And we all need to do this because we live in the age of texts, right? And nobody has a fucking clue what a text <laughs> means until you have a sense of who the person is sending it to you. Then you can begin to translate sup. <laughs> or, okay, or well, what's up, or, you know, the words into a sense of what is being expressed. You need to have an outside sense of who this person is to make sense of what's going on. If, if a friend of yours is funny and they write you a line saying, I think I'm going to kill myself, you know they're joking about work. But if it's a friend of yours that's, not too funny, and they write that, then you have to hopefully pick up your phone and see what the hell's going on, right? So you don't only use new experiences to update your general ideas about people, a book, a movie, a, a music. You also use your idea about something to help you interpret the parts. And this is very important to know that it's a balance back and forth. Sometimes we're taking into consideration parts and we're updating our view of life. So we go through a bad relationship and we learn something about, we might decide, okay, I'm going to learn something about me and relationships or about what is possible for me to accomplish or find in relationships or find in this experience, but sometimes we use our knowledge of life to disregard entirely a new experience because we know it doesn't fit with everything we've learned. We learned that, oh, this was a one-off, it was a mistake, I don't need to take this seriously. And we're doing this all the time. Sometimes we're updating our view of life, updating our view of people based on the fact that, you know, if somebody doesn't return a text message to you, you have to decide whether that's representative of who they are, right? Somebody doesn't return messages to you. Or sometimes you have to decide, oh, they're probably busy. They got shit going on in their life. That's why they're not returning my text. So you have to use your knowledge of them to interpret the fact that they haven't returned the text. Anyway, this idea will hopefully <laughs> make sense as we go on. So... Sometimes one big problem happens when we have such rigid ideas about what something means that we can't understand correctly new parts, new experiences. So if I took the very first moment of The Sopranos and decided that it was essentially a godfather-like redo, I would have watched everything assuming that the jokes and the humor was not jokes or humor, that it was meant to be very serious. More likely or more familiar to you will be if you meet somebody and the first time you meet them they really strike an off tone and you don't believe a word they're saying and you conclude that that person is a liar. 
then every new interaction you have with them, you might hold that idea in your mind and look and wait until they say something that sounds like an exaggeration so that you can reaffirm your conclusion about them. Oh, yeah, he said it took a half an hour to drive here. I bet it took 40 minutes. He's a fucking liar. <laughs> so that's called confirmation bias. When we take our understandings of the whole so rigidly that we, have, we filter each new experience through these preconceived ideas. Now, at this point, some of you are probably jumping to the conclusion, and it would be alright if you did, that, okay, I know what this talk's all about. <laughs> this talk's all about how somehow in Buddhism and meditation and spiritual practices, it's all about getting rid of our prejudices, our preconceptions, and really paying attention without having anything, any beliefs, any ideas that we hold in mind, so that we really see life as it is objectively. And while I get why that sounds attractive, no, that's actually not what the Buddha proposed. The Buddha did not propose, as we'll see later, that you can ever go into any experience by wholly throwing out everything you've learned, everything you've experienced, everything you've seen to be true, and look at it afresh. It's not only not possible from a spiritual perspective, it's not even possible given the brains we have. Now, what do I mean by that? Less than 15% of what you see is actually made up of the sensations that are going into your corneas. <laughs> what, what am I saying? What does that mean? If you look at the amount of neural information that goes from the occipital lobe to the thalamus, I mean, sorry, from the, sorry, from the thalamus to the occipital lobe, and then after that, out of the occipital lobe where it turns into sight and vision, only about 15% is actually what you're seeing. The rest you're constructing from memory. So you're not actually seeing this room as it really is. You're constructing a lot of this room from memories. And I'm sorry to say you're constructing what I look like from memories. And if you're doing that, please update them. <laughs> Go into your memory banks, rewrite everything you've seen. No, anyway. And in fact, the way the human brain works psychologically is even more profoundly bringing the past into the present or ideas that have already been developed about what life's about. The first two years of life, we make a lot of the core conclusions about what other people are like, whether our needs will be met, whether we can be intimate and vulnerable with others, or whether we need to be self-reliant all the time. Our attachment styles are set in the first two years of life. And even though we can update them, it takes a hell of a lot of effort to do that because they're largely stored in regions that are unconscious. So all the time we're bringing the past and preconceptions and ideas that we've formed about what people are like, what situations are like, what uh, we bring our past relationships into our present relationships. We're always looking at the new in terms of the old. And yet hopefully we're balancing that by integrating some new experiences into our preconceptions of what life is. Now, this is not a bad 
thing. The great German philosopher Hans George Gadamer, who lived to be 102 fucking years old, <laughs> said, or essentially proposed, that it's a good thing that our interpretations of the new, of present experience, is always at least partially guided by expectations. It's a good thing that we are not always fresh, taking in everything as if we've never seen it before, as if we have no ideas of what is possible or what the way the world works. How shall I explain this? Well, I thought I would explain this using one of my favorite examples. In 1962, when Bob Dylan released the song Blowing in the Wind, a lot of people heard the line, and I'm not fucking with you, this is, this is absolutely true, a lot of people heard the line, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. A lot of people heard that line as, the ants, as if insects, are my friends. <laughs> They're blowing in the wind. So there was this large population of people who for a while thought that Bob Dylan was singing about insects being blown about in wind gusts. <laughs> Hopefully, at some point in their lives, their understanding of folk music and what lyrics are probably about created a sense of, I'm not too sure about this. I'll give you an example from my own life. When I heard the song Super Freak, which is bearable the first 10,000 times you hear it in our culture, <laughs> and now induces the desire to stab myself in the leg with a fork. When I first heard it, I thought Rick James sang... When I get there, she's got intertwining candles. Now, I didn't even know what intertwining candles were. But I thought, how interesting. Suddenly he's sing singing about candle design. And then I had this vague thought that it was unlikely that Rick James was singing about intertwining candles. And so I asked my friend, and he looked at me, and he said in a loving voice, You idiot. <laughs> He's singing incense, wine, and candles. And I thought, oh, yeah, that actually makes more sense. <laughs> a lot of people apparently thought in Purple Haze, Jimi Hendrix was singing, Excuse me while I kiss this guy. <laughs> As if Jimi Hendrix in 1967 was pronouncing his homosexuality in a pop song. Now that would have been super cool, but obviously at the time it was unlikely and so people had the idea that it probably wasn't about kissing a guy. And so what these examples are informing us is that um, we use our beliefs and our understandings to help correct extreme misinterpretation so that we can understand what's going on without being so reactive in our lives. So if I walk, this is a famous psychological example, if I walk down the street and I see a friend, Mirza, there's Mirza walking down the street and I wave Mirza and Mirza doesn't wave back, I could think, 
That fucking asshole. <laughs> Mirza. He didn't wave back. I took the time to lift my hand and wave in a friendly... And he's not in any way returning the gesture. What's going on with him? Uppity these days. <laughs> but, in fact... But, in fact... If I have any knowledge of Mirza, I use that knowledge to correct it and, as I said earlier, come up with the understanding that he's got something else on his mind. He probably didn't see me. That's why he didn't return the way. So hopefully we're using our wisdom of life to correct our misinterpretations. And we need to do this all the time in relationships with other people to navigate through any meaningful connection and attachment with another human being. We have to know when their actions are indicating something about them that is core, likely to be repeated that I didn't encounter before and I have to take that into consideration, or B, whether it doesn't represent them at all and therefore I have to reinterpret what they said because probably I misheard took something they said seriously when it was meant to be a joke or vice versa. Lots and lots of personality disorders, people can't do this. They can't actually bear in mind uh, new, uh, bear in mind overall information and they tend to follow perceptions. People who have OCD, no matter how many times they're informed by therapists and friends, often still see a countertop is dirty. Even though they're told they still will focus and through their uh, idea that uh, they need to control, uh, they need to, that everything's dirty until they interact with it, uh, that they need to feel a sense of agency in the world constantly, they will disregard the overall knowledge that they have a disorder and will clean constantly. Some people have Hoarding tendencies, they can be told that they don't need to keep rotting food or old newspapers, but still they see that from the perspective of, I can't let go of everything, everything might be important, and there's psychological reasons why this happens. So, the Buddha taught we need to be able to do both. We need to be able to both see new experiences as they are as much as possible with a, a, and be willing to incorporate experiences into our understanding of life. And this is called Yonisa Manasikara. He also taught in famous Kalama Sutta, don't believe anything that anybody tells you. See for yourself. Test it out. See what works. See if it's true. But at the very same talk, right after that, he says, once you see something is true, carry that with you as you interpret new experiences so that you're not interpreting everything from afresh. Know certain things. And in that sutta he says, no, for example, because you'll see this to be true, I guarantee it, you'll see if you practice, you'll see that when you act from harmful, selfish impulses that you don't feel very good about yourself in the long term. But when you act from altruistic kindness, when you put effort into pro-tribal actions, you'll see that the suffering in life, the stress, your low, any low self-esteem will be alleviated. So know that. 
from then on as you make decisions in your life. So the Buddha is saying we have to do both. We have to go into our life being willing to take in new information and update our ideas about what is important, what is not important for us, what is authentic for us, what is not authentic, what relationships are meaningful, what relationships are not meaningful for us. But we also have to carry with us some basic understandings to help guide our interpretations of each new experience. And the Buddha said those are very few. He said in a famous sutta, I can carry all of the tools or ideas you need to carry around with you in the palm of my hand as leaves. As an example, like the entire forest of leaves is all the information and ideas in the world, but what you need in life can just be held in one hand as a few leaves. So a few ideas are enough, is what he's saying. And I'll give you, as we conclude, a few ideas that the Buddha said we need to keep in mind. So obviously from the Buddha's life, we know that early on he was raised in a very materialist family and then he saw old age sickness and death and he realized that all the material, uh, you know, uh, uh, things that we own, the things that we consume, the things that we, um, uh, the financial security in the world does not help when we face sickness, death, old age. It doesn't alleviate the emotional pain that will arise in that experience. And so the Buddha went off and sought something that would be of value. So he immediately is saying that materialism, the, the idea that amassing a great reputation uh, in terms of our achievements, amassing financial wealth, amassing ownership of things, is not the solution. Other core messages are, if I ever interpret my experience as unique, that other people won't understand what I'm going through, then I am most certainly wrong. The Buddha in the Four Noble Truths and in throughout all the Dharma basically says the process of emotions and suffering and our core experiences are knowable to virtually everyone if we let go of the details and talk about the feelings and emotions that are being experienced no experience that we go through is ever unique individual or unknowable by others and I've seen that to be true in my life so much of the core suffering that went into my years of alcoholism and addiction were founded on the false belief that my emotions were not understandable, were not decipherable by others, that it would lead to rejection and shame if I shared what my experience was. Another core teaching that the Buddha urged us to keep in mind as one of the three core factors of existence is the idea that everything we experience is passing and changing all the time. There is nothing that is solid and unflexible. Even pain is changing. I went through a notable six-hour period of passing a kidney stone. But when I passed the, when I did it using the tools of meditation, I didn't want to do that, but I didn't have access to any medication to knock me unconscious. So, 
uh, I just practiced with it, and I saw that throughout it, the pain and the stories I was adding to the pain were constantly changing. And once I observed just the epicenter of the pain, it became very bearable, knowing that it was changing all the time. So any I, any experience we're going through is constantly fluid, changing. And if we observe it, the suffering that we add to it is alleviated. Finally, a core Buddhist theme is that while many forms of pain are inevitable, uh, such as not only old age sickness, death, loss of people we love, disconnection from people we love, daily frustrations, being stuck with people we don't like at times. Uh, these things will happen, but the Buddha taught that it's our resistance to these inevitable pains, our desire to be inoculated from pain, our desire to somehow kill or not feel our frustration, not feel our sadness, not feel our anger, not feel our disappointment. That's what causes the bulk of human suffering. Not the emotions that naturally arise, but the resistance to our emotions, our resistance to our feelings, our desire to bury our feelings with Netflix or Amazon or Facebook or Tinder or Grinder or any <laughs> other. <laughs> so um, that's tonight's talk. I hope there was something worth thinking about. I thank you for listening. And then we'll have a few more moments of... Uh,